Ouais. Ladies, welcome to Women in the Word tonight. I am so glad that you are here with us. We are in the fifth week of our study on the book of James. If you've been with us all five weeks, great. If you've been in and out, great. If it's your first night with you, we are glad that you are here. As a reminder, we are in the process this summer of answering the questions that we have on the screen. And we've found answers to many of them and have opportunities to learn some more things tonight through the scriptures as well. I told you that every week we were going to start off with the same set of information because if we forget that, we're going to miss so much of what God has for us in the book of James. So the opening paragraph at the top of your page is what I told you that I was going to remind you of every week, and it's this. James is not a book about how to become a Christian But it is a book about living a life of faith once you are one. To become a Christian, we acknowledge before God that we are sinners, that we are in need of Christ, that Christ died on the cross for us and was raised again, and we have access to life. We have access to a relationship with God because of grace through faith, because of what Jesus did with his death and his resurrection. That is how we become a Christian, and James is written to believers. So he's teaching us how do we live a life of faith once we are a Christian. Therefore, James is a book meant to be lived, and it will require work. At the bottom of your page, as there has been every week, at the bottom of your outline, there's a phrase that says, for this to matter, I must. And that is for you to write down there what it is that you need to do and live out in response to what the scriptures teach us tonight. Finally, we must always remember that our actions are in response to God and must be done with his character and with what he has done for us in mind. So there's our reminder. We're going to jump into James again. I had the blessing of attending seminary, and I've gotten to take a lot of different classes from a lot of different professors, and I am a nerd, and I'm a learner, and I loved it, and many of the classes were structured similar to what you might expect would be structured. There was a lecture, and we took notes, and I mean, at times there was an opportunity for questions, but very lecture-based. The classes weren't necessarily big, but there was still that lecture base. However, I had one professor who did it a little differently, and I had him for multiple classes, and so we were typically in a classroom that was relatively small from about 10 to 20 people, so it wasn't one of those things where you could hide at the back like you're all doing, Ashley Reichs in the back, and (laughs) she's the one I just happened to see. You could not hide in the back of his class, Uh, but he had a view of classroom learning that was this. He said, this is graduate school. And we are a community of scholars. He said, I'm going to give you reading. You're going to go home and read. You're going to come back having read. And we're going to have a group class discussion. And certainly he would guide that discussion. But you knew he was going to ask questions and that you were going to have to respond. 
And in addition to that, he very upfront told us in every class I ever had with him, he said, my goal is not so much that you get the right answer, though that is part of what he wanted. He said, I want every single one of you to become biblically-based critical thinkers. So you knew that as you walked into that class, if you were going to open your mouth with an opinion, you had better have thought about it because he was going to ask you, well, why do you think that? And you would need to illustrate from the scripture why you think that. And quite often we would share an opinion or a thought, and he was always very gracious. And at times he would say, okay, well, how do you think this passage comes to bear on what you have just said. And more than anything, hands down, more than anything that was significant to me from seminary, because I had him multiple times, he would make you think through, why do you think what you think, and what you do, and how you do it, and the way you go about doing it. And he forced us, with every response we gave, to at least consider what it was about the scripture that was pointing us to that. And far and away, that is the most significant thing that I learned in seminary, was this constant process of what does the scripture say and how does that have impact on me? and how I do and why I do what I do, because this professor knew the significance of the scriptures. He knew that the answers to all of these questions that we're trying to answer could only be found in one place, and that is in the scriptures. I've maintained a friendship with this professor and his family still to this day, and this past weekend, someone showed me something. Hey, have you read this? And it was someone's opinion on something, and I read it, and I thought, huh, that's partially biblical and partially not. And it was someone I knew that that professor had exposed us to in seminary. So I emailed and I said, hey, I read this and here's what he said. And here's not just why I think other. Here's the passage from the scripture on why I'm not so sure that what he has said is true. But I would like your thoughts on it because it's someone that we read and that was respected. And of course, his response was, I read through all that. Very interesting. I'm going to search the scriptures, and I have some seminary colleagues. We're going to talk to each other this week about if that's scriptural or if that's not. So this process of becoming a biblically-based critical thinker is something that has permanently impacted me and still does. And more than anything tonight, though we are going to study the book of James, but through it, my goal, which I'm telling you up front, is I want us to take some steps to become some biblically-based critical thinkers. And I'm going to show you a little bit of how and a little bit of why, because I and you both know that this, this is the easy part. This is the easy part of life. Coming together with a group of Christians and filling in some outlines on, a blank, on, on your page, filling in the blanks, and having your PowerPoint slides to take home and know you got all the answers, this is the easy part. The tough part comes when we walk out the door and we take the situations that we run into and we try to figure out what or if or how or why it looks like that. And we don't have each other 24-7 throughout the day, but we have the Lord and we have the scriptures. And so my goal tonight that is, is that at the, the end, we will have taken a step more toward becoming a biblically-based critical thinker, such that not only do we know what we think, but we know why we think it, and we know where from the scriptures we got that, 
And we're also able to know why we don't think what we don't think because we can point to the scriptures. Because as James has taught us, it's the scriptures that's the law of liberty. And so if we want the abundant life Christ has promised, this is part, a very significant part, of how we go out, go about living that out. So you will definitely need your outline and your Bible and the verse sheet. Additionally, because there was so much to write, I went ahead and made copies of the PowerPoint so that you could write on it. But again, I want you to be looking at the scriptures and I want you to be thinking. There's this part of me that wishes, because it's a holiday weekend, that most of you hadn't come and there could be eight of us around a table with a whiteboard. And I would be doing what he did to me and I would be making you answer and think about these things. So... If you start to doze off, just remember that I might come down to your table and ask you what you're thinking and why you're thinking it. So I can see even all the way to the back. So pull out your Bible and let's start this journey as we begin to answer these questions. We're going to start by reading verses 4 through 6, and we're going to come out and we're going to be biblically-based critical thinkers. We're going to look at what it says, and we're going to start to make this chart fill in, but I want you to see every ounce of where it comes from, because you can and should be doing this or growing in this process on your own. Okay, let's read verses 4 through 6. He starts off, You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we begin to think about this, the scriptures talk about two ways to live. There's two ways to live mentioned in here, and that is going to be the grid through which we look at this passage. There are two ways we can live in this world. We can live as a friend of the world, which is the same thing as, that is equal to being an enemy of God. We can see this illustrated for us in verse 4. We see this friendship with the world, enemy of God, The contrast to that is we can either live as a friend of God and an enemy of the world. Notice there are only two categories listed. There aren't 17 degrees of this. There are two categories the scripture listed. We've got these written up here uh, on our chart, and you can see there's a third category because I know what's coming, and that there's some things we're also going to fill in that are promises and the results of when we choose to live that life of friendship with God. Let's begin to fill in our chart, starting with verse 7. It's at, or actually, sorry, we're going to go back to verses 5 and 6, and I want us to fill in what we've seen, because these are, in a sense, kind of overarching themes that we're going to see throughout this passage. First of all, it tells us that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if we want to be a friend of the world and an enemy of God, we choose to walk in what? Pride. And if we want the other categories, remember there are only two, to be a friend of God and an enemy of the world, we choose humility. The results of that, based on this passage, if we choose humility, then what happens based on these verses? He gives grace to us, and he's not opposed to us. 
Those are definitely things that I personally am interested in, more grace and God not being opposed to me. I feel very comfortable saying on the basis of this passage that pride is a pretty dangerous thing. Pride is dangerous. God being opposed to you and you having less grace is a dangerous place. Having God not be opposed to me and having God giving me more grace, that is very freeing to me. So humility to me is very freeing. And we're going to see all throughout here, all the characteristics we see, friend of the world, enemy of God, are very much bound up in pride, me being the center of the world, me being the authority, me knowing everything that's going on. In contrast to that, being a friend of God involves humility, us knowing who is God and that that's he. He's incredibly holy. I am incredibly not holy. I have a lot to learn. He is God. I am not. I know what order I am in. And that is something we're going to see play out through this passage. The final thing that I want us to see from this verse is... In verse 5, it says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And I want to remind you of that because God is jealous for you. He longs for you to have all of these things, all of the results of friendship with him. He longs for you to have an abundant life. All the things we've been reading in James about the freedom, the joy, the abundant life, the holiness the victory, giving God the glory. He is incredibly jealous for you to have that. He's longing for you to have that. And that is why he's writing this to you. And I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to very clearly see there are many things that you and I both do at times that will put us in the friend of the world, enemy of God category. And remember, God is not coming here to wag his finger at you and say, oh, aren't you terrible? He is jealous for you to walk into the life of abundance that he has for you through knowing him. So keep that in mind as we're reading through this passage. Because like I said, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's easy for us to come together and to make a chart together at Bible study. But this is the easy part. The hard part is that we're here together for you know, 40 minutes of lecture and an hour and a half, if we include the small group time, you know, an hour and a half. And hopefully at times outside of here, we're praying and reading the Bible and listening to worship music. But you and I spend a whole lot more time hearing other messages than ones that come directly from God. From what we hear on the radio or TV or on the magazine at the stand that's in front of us as we're checking out at the grocery store, to the ads specifically targeted to me on Facebook, to whatever it is, we are hearing a lot of things. And most of our time, unless we're really consistent about pressing in with scripture memory and meditating on it and talking to God throughout the day, we're hearing more messages from out there than from here. So we have a lot of work to do as we evaluate what we're hearing. And life gets hard and it gets messy. And sometimes, even though we know what it says in the Bible, figuring out exactly how it applies to this situation is much easier said than done. I had a sweet woman come meet with me this week who I'd never met before, and she walks in and she says, I mean, she knows who God is, knows that the Bible's important, wants to do the right thing, but she was just in tears because she said, I've reached this point where I don't, like, I would like to do whatever the thing is that I should do, but I don't, I don't even know, like, I don't know what that is. Here's my series of circumstances over the course of months and years. Would you help me figure out, like, what it is? 
This is the easy part. The hard part comes as we take what's going on in our lives and the messages being sent to us and begin to think as biblically-based critical thinkers how and where and what does the scripture fit in here so that I can experience these answers that we want. So what I did the day I was thinking about this, it was not a statistical, by any means, accurate survey. It was the people I happened to be emailing with and seeing that day. I said, hey, by the way, would you just tell me, good or bad, what are just messages you hear from the world? No critique necessary. Just tell me what are things that you hear. So in my non-statistical, official Barna, not at all survey, I have seven things that were things that they told to me are things that they hear. And we are going to walk through this process of looking at what we see in the book of James, and then we're going to compare that verse to one of these things that they've said and see where and how does the scripture have anything to say about that. And we're going to begin to think through what is this lifelong process for us of looking in and seeing where and how and when and what does the scripture say to and about this so that I can experience and know more of God and make these wise choices that I want to make. So pull out your pen and your outline and get ready to um, think and see a lot of super great things from the scriptures. We're going to start with verse 7, again heading back to our chart, the grid through which we're going to look through this. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, let's look. That first phrase, submit yourselves therefore to God, comes under the friend of God, enemy of the world category. The opposite of that would be not submitting to God. So we're putting that in the friend of the world category. The next command we have, resist the devil. So we put resisting the devil in the friend of God category. And then, obviously, the opposite of that, not resisting the devil. Do you see how biblically-based critical thinkers, are you looking and seeing where I'm getting this from? It's taken directly from the scriptures. We're thinking about it, and we're organizing it in a way that we can understand. And then there's a result when we do these things. What happens? It says, the devil will flee from you. Okay, so let's just take this one verse that we looked at and look on your outline at the very first thing. And again, these people did not know what I was teaching on, what the verses were. This was a totally random, the day I just happened to be talking to people type of response. The first thing that one of them said was something that she is consistently hearing through different messages is, you should be totally accepting and completely tolerant of anything people want to do as long as it feels good. Well, let's step back and begin to think about this biblically. Okay, accepting and tolerance. You know, that makes me think of certainly we should interact with people with kindness, with gentleness, with love. We should listen to what they have to say before we jump in with our opinion. There are, there are some elements of truth in here. As we interact with people, we should be the most kind, gentle, loving type of people that people interact with. I mean, there are some things in this statement that, that, that point me toward, you know, I really should listen to them before I just jump in with my opinion and try to critique it. I mean, I should hear them out and ask lots of questions. I mean, I, I should do that. That's a, that's a good thing. However, let's see what this verse we just read in James might have to say about this. 
James says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, I feel like the scripture has something to speak into that statement, don't you? Because basically what this statement says is, you are your own God and you decide what you want, and whatever you think is good is good. Well, that doesn't really line up real well with what we read in verse 7, does it? Submitting to God involves a different authority, right? So we have, to, we have to listen to that as we hear all these advertisements that say, if you want it, you go get it. If you like it, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Well, we kind of have to go, you know, I don't really know everything. And it might be good to consult God on this because it may not end up as good as I thought it was going to end up. So I'm going to have to back the truck up from that, and I'm going to have to say, maybe not. Maybe I need to submit to God here and kind of see what he has to say and resist the devil in this opportunity. I mean, the scriptures have something to say about this statement. Even in just this one passage we happen to be reading tonight here in James. I mean, it says a whole lot more things about this statement. But there's some things here in James that have to speak into this. So as you and I hear these messages and begin to become subtly convinced of them, we need to go, okay, now wait a minute. That, that really doesn't totally line up with the abundant life, the God-glorifying life I'm really interested in. I, I need to stop and think about that for just a second. Now, this is, there's so many great things in this passage. It was very hard for me to choose which things to emphasize. And this is the only time I'm going to stop and talk about a specific phrase because I think it is so important and has been so hijacked. That phrase, resist the devil, can be a very scary thought as we read that. And the devil is a powerful individual, and by no means do I want to diminish that. But resist the devil, and what exactly that means, my mind kind of goes wild. And you begin to think of stories or things you've seen on TV, or how and what does that look like? Well, as biblically-based critical thinkers, when we have a question about what the scripture says, where should we go to find the answer? Well, let's see if anything else in the scripture speaks into this. Let's see if there's an answer somewhere else that might help me understand. Thankfully, there is, in my opinion, the clearest, most important passage for the New Testament church in responding to this is there's in Ephesians, which if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 6 or pull out your verse sheet. There's a passage that talks about spiritual warfare and it gives the church its marching orders for how we should respond to the devil. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing else in the scripture we could speak about, but this is a clear instance of, okay, New Testament church, how and what does resisting the devil look like? I would be interested to know. Pull that out and read along with me as we begin to see, as we think through this one biblical phrase and look elsewhere in the scriptures to try to define what that phrase says. Here we go, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against the schemes of the devil is another way of saying resist the devil. Okay, good. Maybe there's some more information here for me to understand what this phrase means instead of thinking back through this TV show I saw or what I heard one missionary say, which those are not necessarily bad things, but let's at least consider the scriptures first. Going to verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Okay, in verse 14, he's going to start talking about specifically what that looks like. Let's see what he talks about. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay, well, that sounds like something we've been talking about. Truth, the scriptures, who God is, trying to figure out what is true. Okay, that's a piece of the puzzle that we need. That's a part of our answer to resisting the devil. Keep going. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, well, we've also been talking about that in James, right? The righteousness that Jesus gives us in salvation, our quest for holiness, that is a part of this process of resisting the devil. Um, Read on, starting in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Well, every week when I've started the book of James, I've reiterated the gospel which is what it is that has brought us peace with God. Jesus took the pain and punishment I deserved that put me at odds with God. Therefore, because he has given me his righteousness, God and I are now at peace. Okay, that's a part of resisting the devil. Let's keep going. In all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith, okay, believing God, trusting God and who he is with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, being confident of this salvation that's been bought to us by the gospel and that Jesus is going to come back. We're going to get to go to heaven and this whole process will be completed. We need to remember that. Okay, that's a part of resisting the devil. And then the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We've been talking a whole lot about the scriptures and the word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all power and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And if you have your Bible with you, you can keep reading. That's kind of where it ends. Well, two initial thoughts. First of all, it's a lot of stuff we've been talking about already in James. So whether you knew it or not, as you were doing all of these things we've been talking about, if you're living them out, You have been resisting the devil. You just may not have thought about it that way. So that's one thing. Number two, this paragraph has very little to do with anything that initially came to my mind from any stories or TV shows or books that I may have read about the devil. And I'm not saying that what you saw or heard was necessarily right or wrong. We can talk about that. There are other things in Scripture. What I'm saying is... Probably your initial definition of primarily what it meant to resist the devil wasn't this. It was something else that seemed a whole lot more weird and kind of scary. And again, I'm not saying there's no truth or validity to some of those things. But as we become a biblically-based critical thinker and we let scripture define scripture, we get a very different answer than if we just kind of recall in our brains, okay, what have I heard about resisting the devil and what might that look like? Isn't that really cool? I think it's cool. Okay, let's go back to James. And we're going to continue on in our quest of thinking through and looking at the things that we're told so that we can live these things out and respond to life in such a way that we're experiencing the answers to these questions that we want. Okay, let's head to verse 8 and head back to your chart. And again, keep thinking. I know, I didn't warn you that before this holiday weekend, I was going to make you think so much, but 
we have a lot more to do, and there's such great stuff here. I'm so excited. Okay, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, let's fill back in. First thing, drawing near to God, clearly listed in verse 8. The opposite of that, not drawing near to God. What happens when we do that? What are the results of that friendship we experience with God? God draws near to us. What else does it say as friends of God? We cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. It has something to say about us and what we need to do with the sin that we wrestle with in our actions and in our hearts. We talked a lot, we've talked a lot about hearts throughout the book of James. The opposite of that, intentionally sinning with our actions or pursuing an impure heart, going after that. And may I suggest to you one more thing. Doing nothing is also not particularly helpful for us. Because according to Paul in Romans 7, we still wrestle with the sin nature and have that as a part of us. So maybe you want to say, okay, I don't want to choose to cleanse myself, but I'm not going to intentionally go after stuff. Well, the messages in the world in which we live and the sin nature with which you still wrestle, doing nothing puts you on that side. So that's also pretty convicting because doing nothing is something sometimes where we want to land, right? It's a lot easier. So we have this picture for us, and let's see if these phrases we have here have anything to say about our second statement that I want us to evaluate. It says, you are free to express yourself personally however you would like, particularly your sexual identity. Well, let's be biblically-based critical thinkers and think through this. All right, expressing ourselves personally. There's a sense in which that is a good thing. I'm a person that is a approval person, and sometimes I can often not be myself just because I want someone to like me. And who and how God created and made you and your personality and your gifts and your passions and your interests, God created you that way. And yes, we should all work on the sin in our lives, but how God created you, being who you are, I think that's a good thing, at least for me, that wrestles with trying to please people. I feel like that's a good thing. Okay. Okay, we go to the next end of that phrase, and it says, particularly your sexual identity. Now, let's talk about this. Whose idea was sex? It was God's. Sex is not a bad word. It was God's idea. It was given for pleasure, among other reasons. It was given for enjoyment. Sex is by no means a bad word. Now, God, because he loves us, informed us how to experience that gift in a way that it would be positive instead of dangerous. So he says, great, I want to give you this thing. I want you to experience and enjoy that with your spouse and with your spouse alone, because outside of that, it's not going to go well. It's not going to reflect me. It's going to be damaging. But hey, expressing sex within the context of marriage is fabulous. That's totally biblical, and that's God's idea. Sex is not a bad word. However, Let's think through just a minute about what we do with some of the things that were positive in this statement. We have a tendency to mess them up, don't we? Yeah, we have a, a way of expressing ourselves personally in ways that aren't necessarily always encouraging to the people around us. As we yell our opinion at someone we think is dumb. Not really a good idea. As we try to express our sexual identity in ways outside of marriage, 
in our talk in ways we shouldn't go there, how that impurity can creep into ways that we dress. So certainly what we read here in James where it says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, we have to use the scripture to qualify this statement in very significant ways if we want the blessings that God has intended for us and if we want to glorify and honor him. The scriptures have something to speak into that. You know, the, another great thing that I love that the scripture speaks into this statement? Cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts implies there is a way to be cleansed and purified from ways that you and I have messed up. I personally think that is fabulous news. We have a hope and a way to respond to this statement that other people might just feel guilty the rest of their lives, and we get to come before a Savior and say, I messed up, will you forgive me? And he says, absolutely I will. This verse is not just condemning of us. It offers in this a hope that when we've all messed this up in some way or another, none of us has fully expressed ourselves well personally or sexually over the course of our lives. None of us has. So we have a hope inherent in this, that as the world speaks this message and at times goes, oh, I messed up, I might have to resign from Congress, I might have to whatever, we have a hope to speak into that. And again, I'm not, I mean, I'm not making fun of him. I'm saying, if he doesn't know Jesus, he doesn't have the hope that those who know Jesus have. Like, I feel bad that at the end of his impurity, if, and I really have no idea if he knows Jesus or not, but, but we have a hope that he may or may not have. I think that's an awesome way that we have something to offer the world based on the scripture, that the world doesn't have to offer us when this speaks this statement into our life. We have something to give back to that that has hope and freedom. And I think that is actually giving me chills as I talk. So cool. Okay, I know that the next ones we're going to have to run through a little quicker, and I totally planned it that way, so don't worry. But um, here we go. Let's continue on in James. Verse 9 says... Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That just means take your sin seriously. You know, when was it last week when we were talking about the tongue and how we speak wrongly? We tend to blip over that. It's not that big of a deal. Well, I'm not filling the blank of something else. Whatever is sin, we need to own up to it and take it seriously. However, what do we frequently do? We ignore it. Make excuses for it. Well, I was tired. I was just a little grouchy that day. We make excuses. We mock it. Man, the ways that we can mock, and I think about all the things I've heard in the media that just mock certain sins. We don't take it real seriously. Not a good thing. So let's look at our statement here that we've got as biblically-based critical thinkers. What do we say? Someone said to me, that this is something she's regularly hearing, is that there's always something better than what you currently have. New car, new spouse, whatever that is. Well, um, to want other things, now again, not necessarily these if you have them, but to want other things and work hard for them and have desires, not a bad thing. To work after it, go after it, enjoy what God has given you, not a bad thing at all. We don't have a problem with that. However, you know, that little sin, it's just not that big of a deal of discontentment. 
How regularly do we uh, kind of look over that one? We need to own up to that. Take that seriously. Acknowledge that that is what it is. And that as we pursue these things, certainly we have to look at the fact that while some things we might, you know, if we need a new car and have the money for it, fine. But to go into debt over a car you don't need, if you have a spouse, God has given you that spouse, breaking vows and covenants in a number of areas relationally, not a good thing. So taking those sins seriously, whereas frequently we're told, well, if you don't like it anymore, if it's not in your heart or whatever, you can just be done with it and try to find something else. First of all, I'm not convinced there is something else better, but that is not something that is on our path toward holiness and joy and freedom. And we have to be real careful because 99% of the advertisements that we see are telling us that there is something we don't have that we really need to have to be happy. And this is a huge, huge one for us to watch what we're hearing and thinking and how we're acting and allow the scriptures to speak into that circumstance for us. Okay, let's move on. And James What's the next sentence? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Pride certainly is the opposite of that. God exalting us is the result of choosing humility. Um, Again, that's one we've read before, but I thought it had a lot to speak into number four. One of the things my friend emailed me was outward beauty defines you and your value. Certainly last week we talked a little bit about how beauty is important. Christ is beautiful. He's given us the beauty of his righteousness. Beauty is not a bad word. But outward beauty being what defines us is laced with a whole lot of pride. It's laced with a whole lot of me. Me being the center, me being important, me being whatever. It has very little to do with humility. And certainly the scriptures speak to us in that way. Verse 11, man, this one has come to mind a thousand times this week. Join me in acknowledging that you do this as well as I do. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So he's talking about Christians. Don't talk against other Christians. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So look at this. Speaking evil against or judging or assessing another Christian. I'm going to come back and explain that in a minute. It's the same thing as you looking at God's law and deciding that you are the judge of that which is completely crazy when you think about it. Well, I was just saying the truth to my good friend about that person. No, no. That is you making a judgment about God's law. That's a pretty crazy statement right there. Now, he goes on to explain to us why this is such a big deal. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So certainly loving our neighbor, particularly with our judgment and speech, is significant for us. That keeps us from being a breaker of the law and a judge. It helps us to focus on the one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. It enables us to maintain a right perspective on ourselves. Certainly there are times that the scriptures speak to something and clearly call something sin, and it is okay and totally right and good for us to go speak to that Christian brother or sister and say, hey, I'm kind of worried about this in your life. I'm concerned. I see this. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the ways that you and I tend to have a commentary or an opinion over small things in everyone else's lives. That has to go. That 
is us being tr- acting like the judge when that is not our role. We are the one under the judge, and he's totally able to save and destroy as is necessary. So how does that speak into number five? Certainly social networking and the ideas that we want to tell everyone where we are, what we're thinking, and what we're feeling at all times. Again, not totally a bad thing. Connecting with other people, sharing what we think and where we are, totally great. However, how often does that involve a negative commentary on someone else? We have to be real careful in this world of social networking and sharing that what we share is appropriate Certainly the scriptures speak to that. Keeping on going, we'll finish these last couple. Um, So what does the scripture say to us in verses 13 through 16? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Again, not necessarily bad to make plans, but look at the pride and the motivation just out for money and greed here. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So we're continuing on in our chart of needing to acknowledge God's sovereign will in our planning, not boasting in our arrogance and in our pride, assuming like we know what tomorrow will bring. And when we do that, we're prepared for life to end or for plans not to go the way they thought we would. Because that, I mean, none of us are going to be here forever. We need to be prepared for that. So the sixth statement I want us to quickly evaluate says, anything is attainable, opportunity abounds. And again, we have some freedoms and can and should pursue things, as we've said before, with our gifts and passions and interests, and that's a good thing. However... The pride underneath that statement is something the scriptures speak to. Whose will is sovereign? Not ours. So that statement, even though it seems positive, it seems like the American dream, there's a way the scripture speaks into us and forces us to think through and qualify that. Finally, verse 17 says, For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if we want to be a friend of the world, then we fail to do the right thing. If we want to be a friend of God, we know the right thing and we do it. We're able to avoid sin's consequences along with many other things. Certainly verse 7 and how the scripture, or not verse 7, number 7 on your outline and the way the scripture speaks into that. says whatever you want, no matter the consequences, okay. Again, wants aren't bad, but consequences, all consequences are not okay. They're not a good thing. So I thought it was really interesting that even kind of with my, like I said, random non-Barna survey, that the scripture that we just happen to be studying tonight clearly speaks into, on different levels, all of these things. So thanks for hanging with me. Aren't the scriptures awesome? Thinking through them is so fabulous. It takes work. But there's an excitement and a joy and a freedom as we look at what we're hearing and what we're doing and begin to evaluate these things. One more thing that I want you to look at in the scriptures, as we begin to think through, as we look underneath this text for, can we see anything about why James wrote it, the intent of the text, what he would like to have happen? 
And that opening phrase in verse 4 um, is very penetrating. He says, you adulterous people. And as we read through all this, certainly you can see James hoping for and longing that the people would end their adulterous relationship with the world, choosing the world, and that they would repent and turn back to Christ. So as biblically-based critical thinkers, as we need the scriptures, we need to look at, well, what was the author going for? What was God hoping would happen? What was James hoping would happen as he wrote this passage? Why is it there? Well, clearly, even just from that opening statement, oh, adulterous people, we see him longing to come back. He's saying, hey, come back this way. Don't do that. Come back this way. The abundant life you want in Christ, more of Jesus, glorifying him. Come back. There it is. So I thought it appropriate as biblically-based critical thinkers, that we end not just with a right understanding of the scriptures, but as James has talked about, an appropriate response to the scriptures. So I'm going to lead us through a prayer of confession because I don't know about you, but as I read through that list, certainly there were many things that spoke to me and said, ugh, Kath, you've, you've started to listen a little too much to the world and become a friend of the world. You need to alter that. I mean, I really have noticed just in simple things that I might say, I was talking with my dad about something this week, and he doesn't know anyone here and wouldn't have known the person I was irritated with at the time. I started to open my mouth just to say, and this really makes, and I thought, hmm, do not become a judge of the law and just keep the mouth shut, Kath. You know, And so for me, this has been very significant. And just those tweaks of reminders of ways, because we spend so much time listening to other things, how the scriptures have an opportunity to speak in. So if you will bow your heads, our closing tonight will be hopefully in line with at least part of what James and the Spirit were hoping would happen as we read this, that there would be some repentance and some change and some confession for us. So close your eyes and you just quietly where you are, talk to the Lord and ask him um, to, to show you and give you wisdom and to which one or ones of those issues that we talked through tonight are an issue for you right now. Ask him to show you that. Now ask for forgiveness for that, for how your heart and your hands have both pursued that and ask for forgiveness for the motivations in your heart that you see as well as the actions that you have done. Thank him for the forgiveness and the grace that he has promised and given to you. Ask God to show you what it is about Christ and about following him and the promises that you have 
that are so much better and more fulfilling than that sin that you have pursued. And finally, ask him to help you put on all of those characteristics that we've learned tonight as being friends of God and enemies of the world so that you can respond differently the next time you're faced with that situation. Lord, I love that you've given us the scriptures. I love that you've given us a mind. I love that you, years ago, gave me a professor that challenged me to be biblically-based critical thinkers, and I acknowledge I have a long way to go in that, but it has been the funnest journey. I never know how, I never knew how cool that that would be and how significant that would be for me, so I just want to say thanks. I pray for each one of us that we would be biblically-based critical thinkers, and that once we've assessed and learned the scriptures and figured out what the appropriate response is, that we would actually choose to live it out as James has talked about, so that we are more free and that you are more glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good night. We'll see you next week.